Tired of being cornered at parties without a ready opinion of the relative merits of ESG's second and third albums? Tempfan's pre-rolled opinions allow you to bluff a working knowledge of the entire discographies of countless legacy artists. Listen to this podcast and never again be at a loss for a hot take on any number of amazing bands. Or you can just listen to the albums and make up your own mind. We're not about to tell you what to do. Best of all, we recommend you listen to them both via our playlist on Spotify that combine informed album introductions with the records themselves. Temporary Fandoms began life as a bunch of idiots on Facebook who listen to complete discographies and then talk about them. Since we've been doing this for five years, we thought it was high time we heave the format into something more lasting so you can join us in listening to and arguing the toss about an artist's work at your own pace. If you're not utterly repelled by Facebook, and frankly you should be, you can join the group at facebook.com slash groups slash tempfans. But that's not necessary for listening to the podcast, which is available in most places you'll usually find these things. However, we strongly recommend listening on Spotify. I mean, they're not paying us or anything, it's just that there you'll find the podcast arranged in a handy playlist that allows you to listen to all the great and not-so-great records we'll be talking about. Thank you to everyone who listened to our pilot episode on ESG, especially those who took the time to give us feedback, with which we hope to make episode 2 even better. So join me, Nick Hilditch, Ewan, and our curator, John Tanzi, as we take on our second band, The Mighty Pogues. Okay, so welcome to episode two of the podcast. You heard Nick's voice just before the intro. Um, hopefully this time we'll be a little bit more slick, a little bit better edited and seem like we know what we're doing. Does that sound about right, Nick? Yeah, I reckon. Um, also, I wanted to say um, thank you to everyone who took part in the first episode because we kind of forgot to do that. <laughs> yeah, end. we did have this plan to loop back in, have this thing at the end, say thanks, that was amazing, give our opinions, and it ended up on the, what would you say, cutting room floor? Sort of, yeah. And then, but, you know, I want to say thanks to Jonathan Fisher for writing the music, which was great. Thanks to, thank, thanks to Jonathan Fisher, and thanks to Zoe, her curation was amazing. Thanks to Marion for spending probably two hours of her life that she's never going to get back. Um, which we never used in the end. Thanks to anybody who listened and gave us feedback for part one, which is ESG, which hopefully if you haven't found it already, you'll go back and listen to that now. And anything, did I miss anything, Nick? No, I, I think that's everything. But the remarkable thing is after this shambolic thing we did the first time that anybody volunteered to curate for the second episode. And speaking of idiots who volunteered to curate from the second episode, um, hey, John. <laughs> Hey, Ian, how you doing? <laughs> Not too bad. Um, welcome to the, the shambles that is the uh, Temporary Fandoms podcast. Um, where are you calling us from? I sound like a radio DJ when I ask that question, but I'm going to stick with it. Uh, I'm, coming, I'm coming at you live from Brighton uh, in the UK, Ian. Brilliant. We already mentioned who we're going to be covering this episode, but why don't you remind us, John, and tell us why? 
Okay, so uh, we're going to be uh, immersing ourselves in Shane McGowan and the Pogues, which is not a particularly pleasant idea. Um, and <laughs> uh, so the reason that I, I always dreamed of being immersed in Shane McGowan, um, and I suppose the, 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 the reason that, that I love the Pogues, I suppose if that's a question you're asking, uh, it, it's partly sort of cultural, you know, my... Uh, uh, my dad was was Irish, and and I sort of come from that background, uh, and so for the Pogues to take that kind of traditional thing and then sort of throw it into a punk mixer, that really uh, it was really exciting uh, for me. And um, were they one of those bands that uh, arrived in your consciousness fully formed, as in what you got into, say, alternative music and punk? And then you went, oh, but there's also this band that has Irish roots and is merging a bit of the Clash and a bit of the Buzzcocks with this Irish trad. Or were they a band that you sort of discovered through osmosis as you were growing up through a family or whatnot? Well, I remember the very first uh, time I heard the Pogues was one of my friend's older brothers played the sickbed of Cucullin in his car. Uh, and that song starts off very traditional slow kind of Irish uh, and then it becomes completely punk rock and I think it must have been about 10 years old uh, but I found it incredibly exciting and that uh, excitement of taking that sort of traditional stuff that, that I had heard and I I'd always hated to be honest um, I, but then making that kind of punk thing uh, was what uh, really blew me away so after that I, after about the age of 10 I think I'd always been aware of the polls and it'd always been something that I'd heard and it is part of, you know, the culture, of part, part of the West uh, of Scotland and all that. So you say it was about 10. I mean, when I was 10, I think I was listening to Salt and Pepper. Um, and so my music taste hadn't really formed at that point. Um, were you listening to anything interesting by family members or was the Pogues the first thing that kicked your door in? Well, I did that thing where I had an older brother, you know. I had a, I had a brother who was seven years older who was into the jam and Northern Soul and all mod music and two-tone. So I sort of grew up with pretty decent taste, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, I have to say. So I don't, you know, uh, so they weren't the first band. Uh, but my first sort of brush with Irish music, I suppose, uh, was uh, tapes in, in the car that my dad would play. And um, it was always really kind of maudlin, sentimental kind of stuff, you know. Uh, he would have these tapes with, <laughs> Uh, there'd always be like one or two guys uh, with big sideburns and jumpers either stood in front of a farmhouse <laughs> or, else, or else in front of a roaring fire, <laughs> which presumably was inside the farmhouse. Uh, and, and it was really that, that commercial stuff was really sentimental and kind of, uh, and my dad would play it almost as a punishment, you know. I think that's it. I was aware of Irish traditional music. Um, I, the area I grew up in was very working class, very Irish, Irish grandparents. But basically, it just passed me by. The first time I remember hearing of the Pogues was when the Pogues and the Dubliners would play together on like Top of the Pops or something. And yeah. they, they were already a thing. I had no idea who they were. And in fact, the first sort of brushes with fiddles and traditional music that I got was embarrassingly bands like the Wonder Stuff and the Levelers who mm -hmm. took that that trad idea and brought it into sort of indie indie English indie music 
I guess. Obviously, at that time, I was not really aware of the, the legacy and the influence of Shane McGowan uh, and the Pogues a couple of years, a couple of years prior. So one thing we don't want to do when talking about the Pogues, which maybe we did a little bit when talking about ESG in a previous episode, is, is go down the route of saying they're an Irish band, look at the Irishness of it, Irish, Irish, Irish. However, we also can't avoid the fact that they're rooted in trad and bringing a modern sound or modern for the 80s and 90s and a post-punk sound to uh, and marrying that traditional Irish Irish music. Um, John, um, we were talking a bit ago about how, how you thought that the Dubliners had also uh, gone through that before. Yeah, I think, um, you know, with, with traditional Irish music, there's a, there's a strain that takes it very seriously. It's almost, almost like classical music. Um, and that, you know, you know, they play with the authentic instruments and uh, it's all very, very heightened. And so you've got a band like the Dubliners come along who sang just just body drinking songs, you know, almost exclusively, or else maudlin death songs. Uh, and then the Pogues come along, and the Pogues do almost exactly the same thing, body drinking songs and maudlin death songs. Um, what would you say would be the big, I mean, if they're both singing the same kind of thing, um, was the difference purely the punk influence? Yeah, I think so. Um, as Shane McGowan says, uh, at the beginning, uh, the Pogues weren't, any good. They were, they, they were very incompetent. And the fact that they were trying to play this Irish music without any real knowledge of how to do it properly was what led to that sort of that interesting sound. Uh, I suppose like Johnny Cash, apparently as well, his band couldn't play their instruments. That's why he got that, that kind of metronomic beat going, because he couldn't play fast. Uh, the Pogues couldn't play slow, I suppose, uh, and, and, and sort of ended up with this, this kind of punky kind of thing. Uh, but a lot of Irish musicians, a lot of uh, uh, Irish culture, Irish media were uh, very angry with the Pogues for, uh, as they saw it, underlining the idea of a drunken paddy sort of stereotype, uh, uh, which they were trying to get away from. And even on that, um, just jumping in slightly, how was Shane McGowan treated? Because, yes, he's got Irish family, but he... He's a guy from London, right? I mean, have I got this? He's, he's a guy from London with a bit of a London accent turning up going, this is modern Irish post-punk music. Was there, uh, maybe from the Irish press, a bit more of a sneer? Yes, I think, yes. Yeah, there very much was. In fact, there's a story about uh, they went on a television program and uh, uh, the music was described as a bastardization uh, uh, of Irish culture. And yeah, I mean, not only was Shane McGowan Anglo-Irish, the rest of the Pogues weren't even Anglo-Irish. They were the English. Um, they weren't, you know, Irish Catholic or with Irish ancestry, they were, they were English. Katie Reardon obviously was of Irish ancestry, but she wasn't born in Ireland. And the rest of them were, were English. So it really was a hodgepodge. Mm -hmm. And when they went over to Ireland, I suppose the, the idea is that the, the fans, the people took Shane to their heart and said, he's one of us. Uh, but a lot of the, the maybe the other people, uh, uh, the middle classes, the media, the chattering classes, uh, decided they were promoting a, a dangerously retrograde image of, of Irishness. Do you think that could be because, and I'm totally plucking this out of thin air, or my, my half-assed notes here, um, most countries, most generations, most groups, they, they want their own punk poet, so to speak. You know, when, when punk 
blew up in the 70s. There were people who attached themselves to, I don't know, Johnny Rotten or, or whoever. Um, certain generations have their beat poet, their punk poet. Um, I'm guessing at that time in Ireland, unless, well, it's all early 80s, would it have been where he, they sort of went? Yeah, absolutely, 84. You've got you two who were probably actually an all right post-punk band in their early albums, but there's mm -hmm. not really something that people could, uh, an authenticity people could attach themselves onto. Do you think he came along at the right time, bringing an updated version of, of, of Irish music, but with this, this sneer? Well, I think to me it was, this, it was the, it was the unapologetic nature of it. Uh, I think Irish culture was maybe trying to get away from the ideas of the past, understandably, um, with uh, what was going on uh, politically with the Troubles and everything. And they wanted to get away from the idea of people telling Irish jokes about Irishmen being drunk and all the rest of it. So it's, it's understandable. Uh, but some of those, the, the, you know, uh, there's an element of truth in some of those cliches. And, and, and Shane McGowan and his mates, they, they were heavy drinking uh, sort of, sort of Irish people, and and heavy drinking Irish people love them, as did heavy drinking people the world over. I think there is that it's very hard to to decouple uh, any <laughs> image of the Pogues. I mean, I'm I remember when I lived in North London, somebody saying, "Oh, that's the pub Shane McGowan's always drunk in." Uh, it's not that's the pub Shane McGowan's in. That's the pub Shane McGowan's always drunk in. There's some bands. It's impossible to decouple the the tawdry, negative, seedy side, I guess, whether mm. it's alcohol or drugs or, or womenizing or, or, or whatever, any sort of self-abusive um, behavior. Yeah. You can't imagine some bands existing without it. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And, and for me, Shane McGowan and the band in general, but Shane in particular, you know, he really, he really did walk the walk, you know. Like you look at say the Clash and maybe, and I love the Clash, but maybe Joe Strummer. You know, you look kind of coolly the Quiff. Uh, they stood with their legs apart with the guitars, all the rest of it. Shane McGowan really didn't care how he looked. He didn't bathe. He was he was really punk in that sense of you could be ugly and be a punk. You could be smelly and be a punk. You know, you didn't have to uh, 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 sort of conform. So I think yeah, that that sense of of them being tied into the lifestyle. Is maybe stronger with the Pogues than it is with, with almost any other band. And part of the reason is the drunkenness, I think. It's like when you went to see the Pogues, they were on the stage. They were as drunk as the audience. It felt to people like they were one of them. Uh, and some of those early gigs, they, they're literally like bumping into each other. You know, they're hopeless, but it's, it's just the energy created is just so, so much fun. So skipping forward a few years, we've, we've got the, this idea of this authentic band semi-Anglo-Irish, but representing a sort of post-punk authenticity. Um, and they also have one of the, one of the biggest sing selling Christmas singles the world has ever seen. Indeed. How is this? Oh, my brief caveat, um, and anybody who knows me knows this is true. My household is a battleground every Christmas. My wife <laughs> is from Cork. Obviously, it's the fairy tale of New York. I'm from Wolverhampton. I'm sorry, it's Slade, it's Noddy Holder, <laughs> that's the single greatest Christmas song the world has ever known. However, Noddy is this big, cheery, cheesy character that is happy to go, it's Christmas! Whereas Shane McGowan, 
I mean, how did he deal with this? Do you know? I mean, did, was this something that he just shrugged off? This 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 global fame, and it's a global fame for a Christmas number. Was it a Christmas number one or a Christmas song? Anyway. Yeah, Christmas number two. Yeah. Uh, always on my mind by the Pet Shop Boys. Uh, uh, beat it out. Um, I, I think it's fair to say that that fame didn't sit well with Shane. You know, fame and fortune. Uh, turned an already very volatile character into uh, somebody who, who who didn't really know how to escape, other than than sort of trying to kill himself so that he went with excess. Um, and so I think the 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 fact that song was was huge was probably quite good for the band in terms of uh, financially. Um, and I think for some people, they, I, th- I think some other artists might be really annoyed that they were defined by a Christmas song. But I don't think Shane really cares. I think he's quite proud of that song, from what I've read in interviews. Um, I, and I, think it, it, he... it, I mean, I would be proud of the second best Christmas Christmas song ever made. <laughs> well, Slade, of course, are another underrated band. <laughs> oh, I am going to be pushing for the Slade immersion. I'm just waiting and waiting and waiting until Nick's drunk enough to agree. <laughs> oh, actually, probably about eight or nine, I think. And they get pretty metal towards the end, like surprisingly mm. metal. Yeah, that doesn't sell it to me, but I was just going to say, maybe we should do it at Christmas. <sighs> oh, don't. Okay. It's got to be at Christmas, right? <laughs> um, one thing I will say uh, towards Barrett of New York, and I'm going to caveat this with Slade is also about the depression and looking towards the future and optimism. Um, is that Fairytale of New York is a deeply tragic song about immigration and tensions um, wrapped up in this this, this Christmas tale. Um, And this sort of depth of lyricism um, does seem to be a common thread through their work. Um, John, you were talking to us just beforehand about um, how you think that Shane is one of the few people who maybe has read and can quote and sing parts of Ulysses. Well, that's right. I mean, I think you hit on two things there uh, about Shane's lyrics. Is, is the first thing is that he writes about people that don't normally get written about. The, the drunken old couple who are dying um, after their dreams have completely failed in New York. It's not a normal subject for a song, um, even amongst some of the more maudlin songwriters. They tend to write about their own heartbreak, but Shane sort of inhabits the lives of these people. Uh, who, who don't normally get, get stories about them. Uh, the Old Man Drag's a classic example uh, of, of, of like a teenage uh, rent boy who's, who's been abused and who's dying uh, in a police station. And nobody else was writing those songs. Nobody else was writing about those people. Um, but then the other thing, of course, is the, is the sort of depth of literary reference in, in his lyrics. Um, and there's a great website called Pogetry, uh, and it treats his lyrics almost like they're a an academic text, which they are really. Um, and the more you listen and the more you read about them, uh, you can see that not only somehow Shane McGowan uh, internalised all this poetry and all this uh, all this beautiful stuff, and as you said, James Joyce's Ulysses, uh, while still you know being Shane McGowan, still being an absolute tear up and, and 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 drinking as much as he did and being as wild as he was. Does that play into the classic trope, though, of, of the drunken rogue, the, the Richard Harris, the raconteur, keeping court in a pub, um, able to sound eloquent yet hammered at the same time? I think it does, uh, definitely. Uh, it's, it's part of that genre of, of sort of maybe men who get away with it. 
as far as I can see, Shane McGowan uh, backs it up with a, a depth of knowledge, genuinely, that, that you don't tend to see uh, in other people that aren't academics. It's almost that level, I would say, like a, a literary professor of some kind. He's got that level of knowledge. Whereas I think Richard Harris, maybe not. Well, I think we've, we've covered quite a lot and this has probably got a lot of people listening going, I want to listen to the pose. I want to listen to the pose. Um, first of all, you are going to have to listen to some of Shane's earlier stuff, uh, but John will take you through this, talk you through this um, after this. When he was about a year old, Shane was sent to live with aunts in Tipperary, while his parents got started in London, which was a common enough arrangement for Irish immigrants at the time. The story is that Shane grew up in a farmhouse with a seemingly endless cavalcade of uncles, aunts, grandparents and cousins. He describes it as a chaotic but loving world of music and smoke, Guinness, rosaries and horse racing. He remembers loving the freedom. It was a world without enforced bedtimes or baths. And by extrapolation, I guess you would say without brushing his teeth. Shane claims he was smoking, drinking and gambling from age five. And he first tried whiskey at age eight. On top of all this was a prodigious literary talent and an obsession with Catholicism. Reportedly, he would entertain visitors with his ability to recite the catechism while barely of school age. Skipping forward a few years and back in London with his parents, a young Shane excelled at literature and won a scholarship to the ultra-exclusive Westminster School at age 14. Perhaps predictably, he was expelled almost immediately for smoking hash and drinking. By his teens, Shane was a barman in the Griffin Tavern in Charing Cross. And in June 1976, he'd see a Sex Pistols gig that he says changed his life. Teenage Shane became a notorious figure in London's brief and chaotic punk scene. In Shane's words, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. If I hadn't been for punk, I'd probably be some drunken shithead barman running my own pub. He decided to call himself Shane O'Hooligan, which sounds like a punk character in the Beano, and formed his first band. Along with Shanna Bradley, who later formed The Men They Couldn't Hang, he founded The Nipple Erectors, who somewhere along the line became The Nips. Most of The Nips' music was high-octane punk rockabilly, but the song on this playlist, Gabrielle, was their only brush with very minor commercial success. It's a pleasant enough Elvis Costello-style pop song, but it wasn't enough. It seemed that The Nips were fun, but ultimately a failure, and Shane, was back to working in pubs again. Within a couple of years, punk was over. In Shane's words, the dreams disappeared like smoke out of an opium pipe. At the end of the day, you were left with old brothel creepers, a load of hair gel, 
a couple of bottles of bottles of crazy colour, and the doll. Shane began to gather musicians from the squats round King's Cross. Together they would play drunken covers of Irish songs for fun, and then that gradually became their defining sound. The band were Jim Finer, the banjo player, James Fernley, the eventual accordionist, 17-year-old Kate O'Reardon, Andrew Rankin on drum, and Spider Stacy, who was basically just Shane's mate at the time. They called themselves Pogue Mahone, a reference from Ulysses which means kiss my arse in Irish. The early Pogue Mahone gigs were predictably chaotic. In the back rooms of dodgy London pubs they delighted and appalled in equal measure. The band were rock musicians trying to get their heads around playing Irish folk music for the first time, most often in a state of advanced inebriation. Jim Finer says, the whole thing had a very unique sound because it was learnt in a very accidental way. We were just a bunch of useless musicians trying to play Irish folk music. And obviously, it turned out completely different. Shane said, What we were doing was good, however badly we're doing it. It's good because it's based on good music. It's emotional. It's what songs are about. Their eventual manager Frank Murray describes the early shows as a total mess. There were people bumping into each other all over the place. It was kind of like slapstick, except it wasn't feigned or pretentious. They were just having a great time. By the time Red Roses for Me came out in October 1984, the Pogues were already well on their way to legendary status. There was a sense at a Pogues gig that the band and the audience were all as drunk and uninhibited as each other, and people loved them for it. Named after a Sean O'Casey play, Red Roses for Me opens with Trans Metropolitan, a love letter to London drinking and Irish ancestry. Streams of Whiskey is perhaps archetypal Pogue song, James Fernley memorably said, Like no other song I'd ever heard, it made me want to drink. And drink like Shane drank. The last of the three on the playlist is Down in the Ground Where the Dead Men Go, which is among Shane's best lyrics as far as I'm concerned. It describes a holiday to Sligo, where Shane saw the dunes where the starving dead were buried during the Great Famine. He stumbles home three parts pissed, only to be confronted by a putrefying corpse rotting in a chair. It references Dante, Flann O'Brien and the millions dead in the famine. The back cover of Red Roses for me sees the band looking like a ripe bunch of pirates. James Fernley looks like the dashing young captain. Teenage Kate looks like she'd slit your throat as soon as look at you. And while Shane doesn't actually have an eye patch and a wooden leg, his legs in plaster, he's brandishing a stick. And every single one of them look like they know their way around a flagon of rum. The gang had arrived. The album launch for Rum, Sodomy and the Lash, the Pope's second album in 1985, has passed into London folklore. The Dishes Worship, the HMS Belfast, moored on the Thames, hosted 400 journalists, blaggers, musicians and general London lowlife. The booze was free and copious and the Pogues played in full Napoleonic dress. By all accounts the sense of occasion bordered on the hysterical. Spider Stacy says, We were far from sober, but the state the journalists were in, they were completely langered by all the free booze. At least one music journalist ended up in the Thames and had to be rescued. Named after Churchill's brutal definition of naval tradition, 
Rum, Sodomy and the Lash sees the production, musicianship and songwriting take a leap forward. Philip Chevron, an actual Irishman, joined on guitar. Elvis Costello and Cato Reardon had fallen in love at some point in the previous year and Elvis Costello offered to produce the album. I once read it described as the moment when the Pokes became a great band rather than a great idea for a band. Although I love Red Roses for me, I can understand the point. Throughout the album, the suffering of the weak and disenfranchised, rebellion against authority and a strong anti-war sentiment pervade the majority of the songs. Nevertheless, it still somehow manages to be a party album. Opener The Sickbed of Cucullin somehow manages to meld Irish music and imagery with the energy of the Sex Pistols. Then the harrowing dirge of the old men drag is the immediate hangover. The story of the death of a homeless teenage rent boy in a police cell. It's very heavy stuff, but people love the band for describing these desperate lives and giving those people a voice. Nobody else was. Finally, A Pair of Brown Eyes is a beautiful, hallucinatory rush of imagery and shifting narrative perspective. And it might well be my favourite song of theirs. I could go on and on about this album. It's far from perfect, but I'll just say that some of the songs on here make me want to cry and some of them make me want to jump up and down with my arms around my mates. I hope they always will. Steve Earle, the Texan singer-songwriter, tells a great story about going to the sessions for If I Should Fall From Grace With God. He was told the band were recording under the secret codename, the Terry Woods Quartet, at a secret studio address. As he walked through what he describes as the impossibly proverbial London fog to the studio, he felt like he was in the third man. He whispered to the security guard, Steve Earle to see the Terry Woods Quartet. The guard looked at him like he was an idiot. Oh, the Pogues. Top of the stairs, turn right. You can't miss it. Half of fucking London's up there. If I Should Fall From Grace With God is the Pogues' biggest selling record, containing by far their biggest hit, Fairy Tale of New York. Steve Lillywhite produced this time and the sound and professionalism go up another notch. As the title suggests, there's quite a bit of death, guilt, damnation and the supernatural in this record. It's true to say that in rural Ireland, Catholicism is still intertwined with more ancient superstitions. Sometimes it can be difficult to tell where ghost stories end and official church teaching begins. Shane remembers a story he was told in childhood about a non-believer who made his girlfriend steal the host from the church. He cut it in half, blood spurted out everywhere, the walls started crumbling and they had to run out of the place. Now a young Shane says that he believed that story completely. That story, that idea could be in some ways the mood board for a lot of this album. Really this record is stuffed with classics, take your pick. For me Birmingham 6 is up there with the best protest songs ever written. Elsewhere there's Bottle of Smoke, possibly the latest song ever written, Fairy Tale of New York, the lyrical broad majestic Shannon, thousands are sailing and so on. Partly because they get less play than others, on the playlist I'm going for, If I Should Fall From Grace With God, Streets Of Sorrow, Birmingham 6 and Lullaby Of London. Enjoy. <laughs> 
Around the time of Peace and Love, the Pogue's fourth album in 1989, Nick Cave said in an interview, Shane always seems to be channeling something when he sings, some kind of energy that exists beyond himself. I saw him at a soundcheck at a festival in France and he walked up to the mic and stood with his hands in his pockets and sang a pair of brown eyes and for the few of us that were there, time stood still. There was so much emotional power coming out of him without him doing a thing that you had to question your ideas of divinity. Five hours later though, McGowan was unfit to perform. That is the other side to him of course, says Cave, but we love that too. Well, <clears throat> Nick Cave may have loved that side to him, but the rest of the band were understandably less keen. Shane was finally, after God knows how many years of sustained abuse, beginning to lose his edge. Not only was the band relying on unleashing Joe Strummer on stage to bolster the gigs, which is a pretty good compensation admittedly, and not only was he forgetting his songs on stage, but his writing was suffering too. He was still capable of playing the odd blinder and there were some great gigs from around this period, but they seemed to be the exception rather than the rule. The opening lines of McGowan's Cottonfield sum up the mood of the album. Now the party's over and the money's all gone and you remember feeling like Jesus' son. There's a sense the band are tired and low on ideas and the nod to the Velvet Underground's heroine is sadly, in Shane's case, self-explanatory. There's some great stuff on here too though. White City is an elegy to a disappearing London. White City was a stadium for greyhound racing in Shepherd's Bush which reportedly hosted crowds of up to 100,000 mainly poor immigrant punters in its heyday. Anyone who lives or has lived in London will sympathise with the lines and the car park's going up and they're pulling down the pubs and it's just another bloody rainy day. Down All The Days is a funny and moving tribute to the writer and artist Christy Brown and finally Jim Finer's Misty Morning Albert Bridge. Some people will argue that the best song by the Pogues, not written by Shane, as thousands are sailing. For others, it's Misty Morning Albert Bridge. So we come to Shane's last album with the Pogues, Hell's Ditch from 1990. Shane had spent a lot of time in Thailand, mostly drunk and strung out on heroin. Somehow, while he was there, he still managed to write. Joe Strummer managed to get the band together to record in rural Wales. Shane's voice is clearly shot and Strummer, by all accounts, pieced together bits of usable vo vocals from various different sessions. Nevertheless, to many it sounds and feels more like the Poles again. The title track, based on John Jeanette's Our Lady of the Flowers, is a short and deadly nightmare of imprisonment. Lorca's Novena revisits the Pogue's obsession with the Spanish Civil War. In reality, the poet Lorca was shot by Franco's men, but in the song, the faith of the woman in the chapel manifests itself as reality, and his corpse gets up and walks away. We're going to finish with Summer in Siam. Shane had this to say about artistic inspiration. Christy Moore once said, there are all these songs floating around the air all the time melodies, phrases, and you've got to pluck them down out of the air, otherwise they'll drift by and some other bastard like Paul Simon will get them. 
Personally, I've got an unshakable image of Shane sitting on a Thai beach, out of his head and plucking summer in Siam, fully formed, out of the air. It's that kind of song. As Nick Cave said, it's so bold and simple and condensed. It's a brave piece of writing and such a lovely tune. The Pogues and Shane McGowan went on to make more music separately, but this was the end of the line for the original lineup and indeed for this episode. Thanks to Nick Ewan and everyone involved in making temporary fandoms such good fun. Goodbye. I've just had a total mental block. I even wrote it down earlier and I forgot about it. So that was the pose. <laughs> a bit earlier when you were singing the, uh, singing Fiesta, do that. Oh, all right. That <laughs> does sound slightly patronizing. Uh, British person just going, yeah. But um, why not? <laughs> no. What? So you want me to start with because that has been what's going on in my head ever since we did this. Um, I feel we should start at the beginning a little bit, um, although obviously that means I just want to say the words nipple erectus. Um, it was a sort of, I don't want to say bog standard punk, but it was just a bit buzzcocksy, a bit pistolsy. There's, I, I feel that if that had been his contribution to music, even if they had another album, they would be on a best of punk. Is that fair to say? No small achievement in itself. If they, you know, just had one or two tracks on the best of punk compilation from the year. I mean, I, I really like the Nipple Erectors. They're inessential punk, but but it's great fun and it must have been amazing to see live. I mean, imagine being a really, really young Shane McGowan doing those songs. I think we're really brilliant. Yeah. No, I agree. I think, I think that would have been a sight to see. Um, uh, but I think you're right. I think the music was fairly standard. It was fairly ordinary. It was like... Um, I mean, the song Gabrielle, I think, was slightly atypical, but but most of it was kind of rockabilly. Yeah. And I think that was the sort of thing that the Clash used to play yeah. before yeah. they started writing songs, you know. And so the, yeah. there was this tradition of, of bands just doing messed up versions of rock and roll songs. Um, yeah. And yeah, yeah, it was probably brilliant fun. I would have loved to have been there, but not necessarily worth. I mean, it was when we went into the immersion uh, the first time, not obviously while we did the podcast, but when it came up on Facebook, which actually wasn't, it was within the last year, and, but that's right, yeah? Obviously yeah, with yeah. the coronavirus, the, the idea within the last year just doesn't seem normal anymore. Yeah. At was, some point- we, Exactly a year ago. Oh, wow, perfect, okay. Um, th this stuff was totally new. Um, I actually went into the immersion thinking, I know some pokes. Um, I probably know a little bit more than I, I think I do, um, but there was definitely a whole lot of stuff that was totally new to me. However, I did come out of it thinking, I knew so much of that. And while in my head, I initially attributed it to, I lived in Ireland for a few years, uh, I, like I said, lots of Irish weddings, it must have been played at various places. Um, my wife at that point uh, pointed out that we've watched The Wire three times. And um, moving on to the, the next album, we have what well, uh, Transmetropolitan uh, was the scene where McNulty crashed his car. Uh, oh, yeah. Later on, we've got Death of an American, which was the yeah. sort of fake wake thing. Yeah. I was aware of so much of this stuff, 
without realizing. Yeah, I mean, they, they came out of the gates. They came out of the gates um, shouting, playing fast, and I, it seemed they were doing their own sort of thing, right? I mean... Yeah, completely. I mean, it, that's the thing I love about it, is that it doesn't sound like anything else still to me. Transmetropolitan yeah. doesn't sound like anyone else. Even bands who've deliberately aped the Pogues, you know, like the Dropkick Murphys or, Murphys or whatever, nobody's quite captured that kind of... Uh, I, I don't know, I suppose it's a kind of spindly, kind of, kind of rattly um, kind of folk music, but with that punk energy, which is just, was just different, I think, to, I to mean, most other things. They do do a perfect sing-along tune, not sing-along a word, but uh, like I did at the start, yeah. Blah, 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 blah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, as mm -hmm. I was saying, okay, I'm moving on to Fiesta. Fiesta was one of those that I realised I knew so much, and I couldn't quite place it. Um, and then it's probably every every highlight of every piece of football on TV in in Ireland when I lived in Dublin <laughs> played that. It was at every wedding. It was on TV and in commercials all the time. Um, it's one of those pieces of music that's so ubiquitous, I had forgotten it was there. I, yeah, I think that's, and that, that, I suppose sometimes things that are really obvious are kind of the most genius ideas. What I love about it is that it, it's totally atypical. It's like nothing else they ever did. It was like Shane just went, oh, I want to do a song about shooting straight to hell. Uh, I decided to sing it in like Spanish and, and do it with this mad mariachi treatment. And it's still brilliant. I, you know, in its way. I mean, you might think it's a bit silly, but yes, in its way, it's genius. I mean, the, the fact that it's it's so ubiquitous everywhere mm. is because it's so catchy. It's so good. I mean, would it be un, would it be sort of slightly unfair to say that a lot some of their songs sounded like a bunch of drunk people in the pub had an idea for a song, and while most people would have an idea and forget about it, they went, "Let's do it now." <laughs> let, let, like let's, let's do one Spain what do we do with Spain stuff yeah let's do it now <laughs> and they just did it yeah. is that unfair to say I mean was there more of a creative process uh, I, I think to me maybe I'm romanticising it slightly but I, to me I think I, I think that's Shane and that's his kind of a, a genius is that he can be just blank face drunk with everyone else but those weird creative ideas you come up with, everyone else forgets them. But it seems to me like Shane doesn't go to sleep. He like keeps that idea and, and he develops it. So I think it's, it, it starts off like that. It starts off as that spark of mad genius. But I think he somehow has managed to get that drunk, but also hold on to the inspiration at the same time, I now, which I think I, is very difficult to do. I now have this image in my head of a very hungover, still slightly drunk Shane McGowan in his kitchen, uh, cigarette, cornflakes, whatever, just mumbling. Oh, and just as he walks around the kitchen, it finally kicks in. <laughs> I really hope that happened. Uh, uh, I think reading James was... Fernley's book, it's it's not fa too far off. Except I don't think he really got hungover. I think he, yeah, not he genuinely, like it sounds like a joke, but I, I don't think he really slept. He just mm. passed out drunk and woke up and drank again. Yeah, which yeah. is very sad in a way. You know, it's like a terrible, terrible yeah. alcoholic. But most alcoholics completely stop functioning. Yeah. But but he seemed to keep doing it from the age of maybe a, from from before the Pogue's first album. Did it he it ever seems really... he was like that, and it, so it's an incredible thing that he managed to keep it going. I mean, did he ever really have a, a proper clean period? 
know. What do you think, Nick, from that book? I mean, well, I mean, the book only really goes up until when they kicked him out of the book. Yes, that's true. And, that, and I guess if, if can we just mention can, can we just mention which book we're reading? Oh, oh yeah. it's called <laughs> "Here Comes Everybody" by what's his name? James Sorry, Fernley. James Fernley was the accordionist in the Pogues. Yeah. It's a very good book. I just read it before the uh, before doing this podcast, so I could sound like I knew what I was talking about. Um, but it, it's it's one of those um, rare rock bios where it's. Um, it's quite literary, occasionally a little bit too florid, but <laughs> um, it, but, but it, it just, you know, really tells the anecdote. I mean, they're such great anecdotes anyway. Even if it's yes, badly it's written, it would probably still be a good book. Yeah, so it's just a bonus that, that uh, the guy can actually write. Yeah. But yeah, in answer to your question, it, it ends pretty much when the kids Shane out of the pogues. And I imagine if he ever had a clean period in his life, it was probably sometime after that. Yeah. That would be in the early 90s. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, yes, exactly. Sort of 90, 90 maybe 91. Yeah. Um, to answer your question, apparently he's now clean. He, uh, he broke his pelvis. Horrifically painful injury. One of many. I mean, if again, if you... Again, the stories are that he, he's broken more limbs than evil can evil. You know, he's like, he's absolutely, because he's, because, you know, because he's always drunk. Um, but the most recent one, apparently, he was in hospital for a long time and apparently he stopped drinking. So that's the last I heard. Not that I keep up to date, but last I heard was he's off it. But I mean, my main question wasn't so much was it about the idea that, oh my God, did he keep drinking all those years? But also creatively, sometimes it's interesting to see what happens to an artist who is sadly or at times defined by their relation to drink mm. when they don't have that anymore. And the same for, for artists who drugs or other uh, addictions, sometimes the creative side suffered or changed dramatically on the way but it doesn't seem like that was that was the case i mean i enjoyed the I mean, whole I, thing sorry sorry no no, no i was going to say I th I, no but i mean i think it did quite quickly i mean you got you had three pretty brilliant albums and then by peace and love i mean even the story is that even uh, at the end of rum sodomy and the lash shane was a complete liability and they were all really worried about him and, and then he got hit by a taxi <laughs> Again, at a spell in hospital, sort of enforced sobriety. And in hospital, he wrote the songs for the Fisher Fall from Grace with God. So even by that stage, yeah. you know, his, it, it was affecting him badly. And I think by Peace and Love, it, it had almost completely mushed his brain. So it's not, not to glorify it, you know. And also, I mean, you say there was, obviously there was a couple of outstanding albums towards, towards at the beginning. And I did definitely enjoy the beginning more than towards the end of it. Um, one track that is not on our playlist, but I'm not even going to urge people to go and listen to it. <laughs> uh, from Crock of Gold, uh, B and I Ferry, um, the Pogues do reggae, um, some like rubber dub dub with a dub in the pub, and Shane shouting ja, and I'm just I was listening to it cringing, and it was almost a crime against music. <laughs> and trying to imagine somebody, uh, a, a, a massive fan, going, no, 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 it means this. Actually, no, it's shit. I mean, it's really one of those songs that just took me out of, uh, broke every fourth, every war. And I went, oh my God, this is garbage. And then I started to question that thing of, you know, when you're idle, like whether it's a, a, a poet 
or someone who you think is an amazing creative genius when they do something bad and then you reassess everything else. And I briefly reassessed everything else. Went, oh no, it's just this, this period. My God, it was bad. The, uh, the clock of gold, it's shame going to the Pope's. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, not, it's not a Pope's record. Yeah, but it, it, I think the rest of them, <laughs> if it had been a Pope's record, they would have stopped them. Yeah. <laughs> it was, um, it was Shane McGowan. Yeah, Shane McGowan and the, and the Pope. And the Pope's, it was, God, it was terrible. Did we, we listened to this on the immersion though, right? Yeah, on the immersion we carried on. Through the yeah, that was why, that's why, I get, that's, why, that's why I remember listening to it a year ago and I put it on last night and my, and my wife had the look of, oh my God, what are you doing? Shame, shame. <laughs> but I, I'm sure you would say like, Nick, it's fair to say your favorite band of the fall. Yes. Right, so they've had their moments of absolute garbage. Absolutely. Largely because the creative force like had a quarter of a brain left, mm-hmm. you know, which is sadly I think what happened. Yeah, you know? yeah, no, I think um, it's brain damage. You end up not being able to do this stuff because. Oh, that I mean, every band. You know. I mean, the bands I love that have tracks that I go, "This is awful," but then there's there's awful and bad, and then there's tragically misguided, and mm-hmm. I think that one was. Shouting jar as in J A R as in a pint, as opposed to ya as in Yahweh. That's strangely appropriate, I think. Uh, oh, oh, mate. <laughs> that, that, was, that was the low light. But you know, was, you yeah. coming up with an idea in the pub and then just doing it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That without the filter, Because right? it probably seemed like an amazing idea. <laughs> yeah. What? Why are we saying jar? <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't that be funny, eh? I don't want to sully the words. People should, people should forget I ever, we ever had this part of the conversation. I, I, I can do that thing now and go, oh, we'll cut that out and then not cut that out. That seems to be a okay. podcast trope, right? Um, <laughs> maybe. So Nick, you got uh, opinions on any of the albums or anything? Well, I think I'm mean, going into the uh, immersion. I kind of only really knew Red Roses for me and Rum Sodomy and The Lash. And I, I think I kind of assumed that that was really all that you really needed to know. Mm. But that was sort of an arrogant assumption. Basically, I've only heard two of them, therefore they're the best. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I still stand by the claim that they're the best. <laughs> I think uh, if I should fall from grace with God, definitely stands stands up alongside them, pretty good. So that was that was a nice discovery, just to just to find an album that's as good as the the other two. Maybe yeah. I'd still put it in third place, but you know it's up there. Yeah. Um, okay. And then they kind of get a little bit sludgy after that. There's yeah. still good stuff in there. It's none of it. I didn't find any of it awful. Um, maybe a few bits that make you squirm a bit later on. I yeah. don't have any examples there. But, but yeah, you, you start to notice that Shane's missing a bit as it goes on. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the later albums are inessential, but it's worth going through them all at least once, as we've done. Yeah. And, and do you think, like I do, that there's an awful lot of people who who maybe misrepresent the Pogues in terms of what they think they're about, you know. Uh, probably Maybe not. see it as a bit of a... Probably people listening to this going, that is not the, that, that's not what the Pogues are about. What are they yeah, talking yeah. about? What were you going to say, John? Like, how do you think people misrepresent them? No, but just, well, I mean, partly Fairytale in New York, but also, like, the, there were a couple of, um, uh, there were a couple of people from the US yeah, who were yeah. saying, who were saying, you know, to them, the kind of, the Pogues and the Dropkick Murphys, and the, there's this whole sort of scene of, sort of Celtic folk punk yeah. where a load of the yeah. guys are like really like they're in there's a load of police well I mean you said about the wire yeah, yeah, yeah. but they're, they're sort of identified with the police and, and and sort of quite big muscle white guys with tattoos yeah, and, yeah, and, and it seems 
if you listen to any of Shane McGowan's lyrics, you know, the idea of working out and being into the police <laughs> is the yeah. absolute diametric opposite of, of, of you know, all it's his a, things become, about the police and about the oppression. It's an interesting thing we come up against in the group quite often because we've got quite a few Americans in the group as well. And you come across yeah. like artists that have a very different kind of profile in another country. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think we could sort of, to some extent, relate to uh, what some of the Americans were saying about Bob Marley when we did that. But you know, they kind of they they kind of just dismissed it totally as being this thing that polite students listen to. And although you can right. relate, right. to oh, it, actual, okay. very deep suspicion. I think in, in Britain, people can sort of relate to that, but still like the music yeah. rather than dismiss yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Still see it for what it is, which is yeah. some of the best stuff ever, really. But anyway. <laughs> Yeah, and, and so, yeah, the same, I guess, with, with the Pogues. And, and the thing is, I don't really like a lot of other bands that kind of followed on from the Pogues. I guess I do have those kind of associations. You did follow on from the Pogues. I mean, obviously, when you've mentioned Dropkick Murphys, I mean, there's the, there's the sort of Pogues direct route, Irish trad, bit of punk. But what mm. other bands would you say lived in the shadow of, say, Shane McGowan and the Pogues? I mean, in my head, I keep having... Um, baby shambles and the libertines mm -hmm. popping into my head, but is that just because shambolic creative force? Who mm. sort of, I don't who, who writes poetic songs. I, I think there's an element of that actually. I mean, it's yeah. something about Pete Doherty, but but Pete Doherty was uh, is a Shane McGowan fan, and they and they I think they they appeared on stage together and stuff. Um, and obviously the libertines are absolute clash obsessives. Yeah. As well as the Pogues and there's Mick Jones who produced, who's been around all of them. So I think that kind of London punk clash thing is is quite strong with those bands. But I do think the idea of bands that explore the the underclass or the underside of society properly, or 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 even try to, are the ones that I think of in terms of the Pogues. So like Tom Waits and Nick Cave are obvious examples. Mm -hmm. Nick Cave for his sort of uh, literary element you know mm -hmm. but it's all very considered it's all very didn't they? references are very clever and, and they, tom waits for the kind of bukowski style talking about the underclass kind of thing i think we have a wonderful world uh shane mcgowan and nick cave 12 inch somewhere sitting in the house. oh yeah it's not good it's not great no it's not great it feels like something that was inevitably going to happen but mm. nah no i know i know Shame. Well, hopefully um, our listeners have enjoyed uh, this trip for the Pogues as well as we have. Uh, John's curation was, was excellent and I think really told a great story. Um, also, I think as a podcast, we know a little bit more about what we're doing than last time, but we are nowhere there yet. You will probably disagree with most of our opinions. Brilliant. If only there was a place where you could go and tell us, no way there is. There's the Facebook group, which is where this all started. Um, as you should know by now, we take an artist and somebody curates from start to finish. We comment, we argue, we disagree. Um, sacred cows are often slaughtered and surprising uh, new favorite bands come out of the ashes from that. Um, we're currently, as we're recording this, doing Run the Jewels. Um, recently, we did things such as Bob Dylan, St. Vincent, mm -hmm. Nick, what else was there? 
Jimmy Jones, Little Richard. <laughs> yeah, Little Richard. My God, we recently did Little Richard, which was which was astounding uh, journey through the history of rock, gospel, and and rock again. Um, rock accused of being uh, ambulance chasers, and um, it's entirely justified. Well, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I don't know what we're we doing next. Uh, Ennio Morricone. Oh, R.E.M. Oh shit. Uh, love Bell and Sebastian. Spiritual. Daniel Johnston last year. Just after he died, granted. Um, yeah, put them in of all time, like Can the Smiths. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. That was the Can the, the Fall. Smiths. Um, Facebook group. Come to the Facebook group. You will find a list of all the bands we That's have done. Do. You'll be able to go back <laughs> and find uh, all the previous uh, curated uh, conversations. We are aiming to to take as many of the interesting ones as we can and turn them into podcasts. This might take some time. Um, join us. Everyone's relatively nice, I think. Um, oh, who is who is that band whose fans turned up and kicked up a fuss? Sleaford Mods. There was some. If you're one of those Sleaford Mods fans who turned up and was a bit rude, that's not you. But everyone else, everyone else. Right. <laughs> Have we just made enemies of all the Sleaford Mods fans? It's not hard. <laughs> um, I myself among them. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you you properly enjoyed it, didn't you? I sleep in mods. I I hated it. Excellent. Let's do them next. Really hated it. I hated it almost as much as I hate the fall. Not quite. <laughs> um, oh, and if you carry on listening to this podcast, at some point you'll hear my heart totally sink and break as, as Nick announces that we're doing three fall specials. Um, by the time this comes out, this might be before or after, but we're planning a Mercury special as well. So that'll probably be there where you get your podcasts. Remember, uh, you can listen as a podcast or you can listen as a playlist on Spotify. We recommend the playlist. If you've just listened to an hour of just us talking, there is a version out there on Spotify where music comes in between all the introductions. It's well worth checking out. Um, from me, there's nothing else. John, hope you've enjoyed yourself. I have, thank you. Cheers, Thanks, uh, And Nick, anything to say? Nothing, nothing at all. Come all on, right. you bastards. See- <laughs> 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 da, 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 da. Da, da, da. <laughs> you all next time, uh, and goodbye. Bye. Cheers, good night. It just remains to say thank you to all the people who've made the Temp Fans podcast possible. Firstly, to John Tanzi for his effort in putting together his guide to the Pogues and for his hypnotic delivery. If you ever wanted to do a guided meditation that mentions nipple erectors, this may be the only place on the internet. Thank you also to Ewan for co-hosting the podcast with me and for his tireless efforts editing this unholy mess together. Thank you to Jonathan Fisher for composing the Temp Fans theme. And remember, you can join the discussion at facebook.com slash groups slash tempfans. We're always open to new curators, so if you've got a band you'd like to talk about, get in touch. I'm Nick Hilditch, and I'm very, very tired.